I'd like to invite up for a moment just to, to share with us before I get into the word, uh, one of our key staff people who you never get to see. You always see Cameron and of course you see Clay and you see me and you see some of the others. But Mark Davis, come on out. Mark Davis is a great part of our team and, a, and really an incredible, a godly man throughout South Florida. He works with us a couple of days a week and works with other ministries throughout the rest of the week. And I've asked him to share a few things here at the end of the year about giving and about understanding those kind of things. So thank you, Mark, for being here. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Thank you very much. What a privilege and a joy it is to be able to share with all of you this morning. And as you think about the question about the perfect gift, I know that we all have dreams, we all have goals, we have plans, we have thoughts and ideas of what life will be like and what is going to happen in the future. And these dreams, plans, and goals, they shape our action. But one of the cores through all of that is our values. And our church here has three core values. The first one is being Christ-centered. The second one is experiencing authentic community. And the third one is, is demonstrating and living out whole life generosity. And the deeper those values are infused into your soul and your spirit, the more they will shape your actions. And the life that you live will mirror your beliefs, your goals, your dreams, your values, and you pray that that is all lined up with God's plan for you. Today I'm going to share with you a little bit on some practical ways that you can deepen and strengthen your journey in whole life generosity. We all make plans, whether it's for our education or career or our finances or retirement, but if you make plans in the areas of finances, retirement, it should always include a giving plan, a giving plan. You see, throughout Scripture, from the book of Genesis to Revelation, we see this amazing generosity of God. You've got Adam and Eve in the garden, and they've given the, the gift of life as well as the garden. And then throughout Scripture, you've got story after story after story. And in Revelation, we have the promise of a, a new heaven and a new earth and the wonderful time for all eternity spent with our Lord. What a generous God. But at Christmas time, more than any other time, we talk about generosity and we experience generosity between ourselves and family members, but we also have the perfect picture of God's gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. What an incredible act of generosity. It is the most generous thing that you could ever do is give up one of your children as a gift to save mankind. And God has demonstrated his love for us through the gift of his son. God's also demonstrated his, his generosity through um, our, his gift of time. He wants to spend time with us. He wants us to spend time with him through prayer. He's demonstrated generosity through his word. He's demonstrated generosity through the gifts and talents he's given us. And he's demonstrated generosity through the resources you know, the scriptures talk about the whole world belonging to the Lord, and the, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And what does he want to do? He wants to give, and he wants to share, he wants us to experience that, and he wants us to be good stewards of his resources. And so as we think about his resources, and you, if you're reading those stories throughout the Bible, you start to glean a few simple principles, and it really narrows down to a couple things. God owns it all. 
God owns it all. And once you come to that conclusion, it kind of clarifies for you what's next. Okay, how much is enough for me, and what am I supposed to do with the rest? So you've got to make those determinations. But uh, you look at what should you do with the rest. Do what God did. Give it away. Give it away. That's what he does. So we need to respond to the Spirit and give generously with a sense of urgency as opportunities present themselves. How do I develop a giving plan? We talked about this a little bit last year. Not everyone was here. And we're going to go into this a little bit more in depth. But you've got to, you've got to think through how to grow in your generosity through the things that you read, the things you pray about and study. You need to develop a theology around generosity. And then there's some principles and priorities and philosophy that you establish that are your own, that you own them in a deeper way, and they line up with the theology of Scripture in the areas of, of generosity. But then you start writing out a plan. And your plan can start out on a note card. And it can grow to one page. And over time, it might be multiple pages. But what is your giving plan? You've got to start for this year, next year, and then a plan for the rest of your life. There's a few questions you should answer in that plan. And the first one is, why should I give? And that's a, a deep question. We could spend an hour on that alone. How should I give? There's so much we can learn about how to give more wisely and more effectively through good planning and strategies, and once again, having a plan and goal. You know, if we don't have plans and goals, it's going to be very hard to, to give wisely. How much should I give? That's the easiest of the first three, all of it. And that's a true answer, because you come into this world with nothing, you're going to leave this world with nothing, and throughout your life, you're going to earn, you're going to spend, you're going to save, you're going to invest, and you're going to give all of it away. And so you might as well get used to that idea, and if you think about it, it's going to happen someday. Why not bring some of it forward and along your journey enjoy the joy of generosity, the blessing of generosity, and experiencing the peace that comes when you finish a, a life estate plan that has generosity as a key component in it. So if someone ever asks you how much you should give away, it's simple, all of it, right? Okay, and as I think about where should I give, and that, this is where priorities come into play. The local church is the place that cares for you spiritually. It's where you have this thing called authentic community. It's where you're fed and cared for. And so principles of tithing and giving should start with a foundational plan of the important role of my local church. But then, unlike some people who might have 20 different things they give to, or some people that might only have one thing they give to, you really need to pray and seek wisdom as to what things really connect with my heart and my spirit with passion that I can get involved with and that where my heart is, my treasure is, but also where my treasure is, my heart is. So there's alignment between those things because then I'm living out generosity, not just stroking a check and mailing it off somewhere. Get engaged, involved in the things that are important to you. How do I get started? Well, we've talked about beginning to read in the area of generosity. Financial Peace University is something we'll be offering again next year. Everyone should have a budget and a plan, and that's a great program. I want to encourage you strongly to go to the National Christian Foundation's website. And I'll, I'll give you that website address. It's ncfgiving.com. And the reason being is it's just a wealth of resources. So, we have a local affiliate here in Fort Lauderdale. There's about a dozen of us that were involved many, many years ago in, in starting this ministry, and it's an affiliate of, uh, with national offices all across the country. 
but it focuses on teaching and discipling donors. It's not intended to be give to us. It's let us help you learn how to be more generous and give you the tools. You've been reminded to download the church app and set up reoccurring giving. You heard that last week from, from Bill. Pray for wisdom. And here's the big one. Make a sacrificial gift. Many of us have had children and grandchildren, and we may remember what it's like to be in the pool, and they're standing on the side, and you're saying, jump, come on, I'll catch you. And they've got this look of fear and trepidation and hesitancy, and you say, no, really, trust me. Well, that's what God is asking us to do. Jump. Trust me. It won't hurt when you get wet. Trust me, the water is soft, and I won't let you drown. And so a sacrificial gift is that starting point. When you have a plan, the, the toughest thing to do is get started with the first step. So I want to encourage a, a sacrificial gift at some point as part of getting this, this plan going. Look and pray for opportunities to be generous. Respond to the Spirit, encouraging to you to give generously, and have a sense of urgency to get started. It's very easy to say, oh, you know what? I'm going to do that in January. That's a good idea that, that Mark gave us for 2023. I'm going to give thought to that. And pretty soon you know it'll be February and you will not have started. So take some of this time and look at the tremendous generosity of our God and Father at this Christmas season and look for ways to get started with the note card or the full sheet or on your computer, on your phone, however, just starting to develop that plan. I want to share a scripture, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, and it's one that really paints a picture of two world, words. It says, command those who are rich in this present world, that's all of us, not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, gives, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So we have two choices, put our hope in wealth, put our hope in God. Rely on uncertainty or certainty. Good gifts for enjoyment. And once you settle that two-master question and where your faith and trust and hope is, then it becomes much more easy to walk out a life of joy and obedience in this whole life generosity where I'm going to give of my time. I'm going to give of my words. I'm going to share my gifts and talents, and I'm going to share my resources. And then the next part of that verse becomes pretty easy to do. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Be generous and willing to share. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. So what flows out of an obedient life that settled the two master question is a spirit of generosity and peace and joy that is just incredible. And here's the promise in that verse. It says, in this way, they will lay up for themselves treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You want a blessed life? You want a joyful life? You want a life that's just filled with rich relationships and great opportunities? Be open and generous with everything that God has given you, which includes your very breath as well as your, your resources. I'm going to close with a quick story. A few years back, I was asked to speak at my 40-year high school reunion. Now, the group that put that together knew I was a Christian at this point in time. They also knew I wasn't a Christian in high school, so the comparison and contrast should be pretty exciting for this crowd. And they asked me to open in prayer, which is kind of obligatory, but they asked me to close at the end and give a challenge and a charge to this group 
about how to finish well. And they, they said, and, and, and go ahead and weave the gospel into it. I said, I'm in. Sounds good to me. So I had prayed at my 10-year reunion, and I got to share the gospel at my 40-year reunion. I think I'm close to redeeming myself for some of what happened in high school, but I might have a little more work to do if I get another opportunity. But as I was thinking about it, not everyone knew God. Many people did. There were people in the crowd of other faiths. There were people that had questions about God. There were people that completely didn't believe in God. But there's this one thought that I had. A lot of people in life have questions that they'd like to ask God. And we've all heard it and we've all felt it. When I get to heaven, I'd like to ask God a few questions. And I thought about that and I thought, even the unbeliever has questions. Even the atheist has questions. And so as I shared... I flipped it around and I said, you know, it's a little arrogant to think that we might even get the opportunity to ask questions. What if when we come into the presence of God, he has a few questions for us? Doesn't that sound a little bit more like our God? And so you, you kind of remember that at his presence, we're going to fall on our knees and on our face. So I don't think we're going to be postured to ask questions. But if he were to ask us a few questions, I thought, what might they be? And I thought of this one. What did you do with the gifts and talents that I gave you? What did you do with the opportunities for spiritual impact I gave you? What did you do with the people that I put into your life, the friends, the family, the spouse, the children, the parents, the grandchildren? What did you do with these precious people that I gave you relationship with? And then finally, what did you do with the resources I gave you? And as I look at the scriptures, I think there's so many verses and so many examples and stories about stewardship and relationships that these are the kinds of questions that I think we should be preparing ourselves to answer because it's a part of finishing well. And so whether you're in your 20s or your 40s, or like my crowd was all in their late 50s, and, uh, or 60s or 80s, finishing well is still an important question. And I think these questions go to the heart of some of the most important issues. God's given you gifts. How do you use them? God's given you, you time. He's given you opportunities. He's given you people. He's given you resources. What are you doing with them? And as I think about it, we all know there's one much more important question. What did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Because if we haven't embraced the truth of the gospel and received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we're not going to even get the opportunity to hear the questions, let alone answer them. And we certainly won't be asking any because those things will be settled for us. So I want to encourage everyone to think through on finishing well. It starts with a relationship with Jesus. And then it starts with learning how to align your life so that you are Christ-centered, you're involved in authentic community, and you're demonstrating whole life generosity. Are you ready and willing to focus on finishing well? Well, then I want to help you on your journey with four simple asks. And I want to mention this, that before I give you those four simple asks, as you walk out, you'll be given a brochure our elders are at two different tables, and they'll be sharing this with you. And there's some devotionals, there's some materials, there's some examples, and it's just really all about the light of Christ has come, and so what is our response? There's a handout that everyone can take. Uh, this is, by the way, one per family. We don't have that many of them. And I want to 
encourage you to read it. It talks about we give as an act of worship, and we talk about having a giving plan. So what's the four things? You already heard them. Download the app. Set up on reoccurring. Visit ncfgiving.com and become a student, a disciple. Start to learn and grow in these areas of how you can be wiser in your stewardship. Plan to learn and grow next year by looking at the opportunities with Financial Peace University, as well as some workshops that we're going to be doing on developing a giving plan much more in-depth, as well as estate planning. And then finally, pray about making a sacrificial gift. It's that time of year where it, it might be a little cold outside, but it's still incredibly fun to see the kids swimming on Christmas Day. And so why not jump in the water and give sacrificially? God wants to release his resources in our church, and he wants to do it through all of you. And so I pray that you will let him develop his story through you as you finish well. Amen. Thank you. Stay for right me. here. Yes. Why don't you pray for us right now? Thank sure. you, Mark. Okay. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your rich generosity of love towards us in so many ways. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect upon that during this Christmas season, that you would inspire and encourage us to share time and talents and resources in, in new ways that impact the body of Christ, those outside the body of Christ, our church family here, and Lord, our our, our entire world. So, Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for the generosity that they've shared over the course of the past year. And I pray, Lord, that they continue on a journey and look for ways to strengthen that legacy and finish well. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank, thank you, you Mark, much. very much. Thank you. Thank you. We've been given a real treasure to have Mark as a part of our team. He has helped us through some uh, difficult times about five or six years ago and helped us with some more fiscal responsibility and all. So thank you, Mark. And he'll be out there with some elders if you have some questions. We are in a last book of a five-book series called Small Books, Big Ideas. We've been looking at the five smallest books in the Bible. We're ending today with the book of Jude, which is the second to the last book in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, it's Revelation at the very end. Move forward just one book to the book of Jude, J-U-D-E. And we're going to turn this into a two-part uh, sermon, so today and then January 1st. Next two weeks, we'll be on Christmas. We'll pick this back up and all. So I have a question for all of you who were not born in the United States of America. And I want you to give me the answer verbally, out loud. If you were born in the United States of America, do not answer. Is that okay? Okay. What is this? No, 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 no. No Americans are allowed to speak. No North Americans. It's a, okay, okay. It's a football. It's a football. Those of us born in the United States call it a soccer ball. Actually, soccer ball, soccer comes from a derivative of the word association football that the British gave us. British actually founded this football. But if you're born in the United States of America, answer this question, what is this? Football. A football, so we have a football and we have a football. So let's just talk about this football.
football for a moment because we are in the World Cup. I apologize to my Brazilian friends. I have no idea what happened the other day. But to our few Croatian friends who are sitting in the middle, congratulations. And the French and uh, Argentines and for the Africans to have the first uh, entry into the semifinals with Morocco, congratulations. For you US people, you don't have a clue what we're talking about because there's something, Miami Dolphins aren't there, so we don't know what this is. But you know what's interesting about these two footballs, the, the games, is they're totally different, but they have the same name. This is used with your feet, that's why it's called a football, and only one person is allowed to use their hands. The goal is vertical, and you are to kick this ball or head it, you're allowed to use your head, just can't use your hands, into a vertical goal. This game is about people who use their hands and they have to take the ball across a horizontal goal into something called an end zone. Now, if you don't know American football, that's okay, or if you don't know real football, that's okay too. But the point is this, is that the object of these two things are very different. It's totally different. You're lucky if you get two or three points, goals, and here the score could be 30 to 40. You could have 70 or 80 points in this game and you only have one or two. The one thing I don't understand about this, and one of you from outside the United States, anybody inside the United States wouldn't have a clue, but how you can end a game with penalty kicks is beyond me. I just don't get after all that work and all that and coming together from all over the world, it's between one kicker and one goalie. And the whole ride of your whole nation is based on one foot and two hands. It's beyond me how that works, but isn't it fun to watch? Skip the whole game and just watch the penalty kicks. It's an amazing thing. But the point is this, right? The point is this, is that the objects are different in these two games, though the name is the same. So when I'm in an all US environment, I can easily talk about football and I don't have to say the word American football. If I say American football, then people at least know what we're talking about. It's not even round, is it? So it's, it's technically a ball, I don't know. So. Um, but if I'm in a non-US setting, I can talk about this very freely. But the minute you mix people, you have to redefine things or not redefine, but define them more particularly as to what you're saying. Because they even use the same words like goal, like uh, end lines, sidelines, referees, etc. So some of the same words are always used, but they mean totally two different things. So we get to Christianity, to being a Christ follower, Jesus, even these words mean different things to different people. To us, they mean something, and to other people, they mean something. The cross means something to me. The cross means something to the Bible. The cross may mean something else to someone else. When I see someone wearing a cross, I used to assume they were a follower of the person who hung on that cross. I no longer assume it, and I always ask, why do you wear the cross? And many times they'll say one of two things, I like it, 
or I was given it, but nothing about their personal relationship to the representation of that cross. Do you see that? We need to realize, and so when we get to the book of Jude, Jude begins to clarify some words in the early church that are already at that point getting confusing. So 2,000 years later, all these words and words have evolution and words have meaning changes and people change and a lot of things change. And Jude is clarifying that for us. So I wanna begin to talk about this. We'll end in a proper time and just stop and finish this in two, three weeks. Can we do that? So let me give you the big idea because small book, big idea. The big idea is this, is that we have a common salvation. Yet, there are uncommon responses to that. There is a common salvation, but uncommon responses. Let's begin quickly, verse one. The writer of this first word is Jude. There are six or seven Judes in the Bible, and there's Judases in the Bible, and there's all kinds of things. Who is this Jude? This Jude is the servant of Jesus Christ, and half-brother is the brother of James, and half-brother of Jesus. We know this from other passages, and I don't have time to get into this, but this Jude is a son of Mary. Now, some of you go, you mean the Virgin Mary? Well, he's not a son of the Virgin Mary when she was a virgin, but of Mary who once was known as the Virgin Mary. One of the problems we have with always calling Mary the Virgin Mary, she wasn't always a virgin. She was a virgin when Jesus was born, and we'll talk about that in the next two weeks, but she also had other children, two of which were James and Jude, and I'm sure she had others. But what was interesting about this and why he says he was a servant is because these two in particular, maybe others of his half-brothers and sisters, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, during his ministry on earth. Here you have the closest people to Jesus, the ones that grew up in Nazareth with him, in those shops that his father worked and yet they didn't believe. And I, be, I understand and I believe that it was during the resurrection between the time he, Jesus rose from the dead to the time he ascended that his family came to understand that he was the Messiah. And very specifically, this James noted here is the head of the church of Jerusalem. This Jude is probably a part of that church of Jerusalem. Um, whereas John was writing in those two epistles we spoke of the last couple of weeks to people that were way out, not in Jerusalem. This book is written mostly, we think, around Jerusalem because of all the references inside the very specific stories of the Bible. There's some very specific stories we'll get to this week and next week that you could only know if you were a Jew. The outsiders would know. Outsiders might know a few of the stories. They might know of David and Goliath and Abraham, of course, they would have known, and Isaac and Jacob. But these stories are very minute stories that he mentions, and they would not be known except by those who grew up in the Jewish context. So we believe it's there. It doesn't matter, but the end of this, it goes, who is it written to? It's written to those. Those are the church. The word those means the church in this case. And he gives three things, and it's important here to see. He goes, to those who are called... So called is something, it's a past tense word, those who are called. We have been called by God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been called by God. 
Many people, this is where definitions come, is it a football or is it a football? Is it calling or is it calling? Calling in the Bible is not what we think it is. We think calling is what pastors, nuns, Christian leaders, missionaries, they're called. They're called to do the work of Christ. But Mark just told us, he didn't use the word, but he was using the concept, we've all been called. God has given all of us gifts, and he's called us to use it. We have been called. You, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, has been called. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have been called. My particular playing out of it is different maybe than your way of playing it out, but that's because you have certain gifts and I have certain gifts. My gifts are not better than your gifts. Your gifts are not better than my gifts. God gives us each gifts because we have this American context and concept that more is better than less. But the Bible said that woman who gave those two half pennies, called a mites, the widow's mite, gave more than all those people clanging the gold coins in, right? It's not the amount you give, it's what you give, it's how you give, it's what God has given you and then you give. It's so important, that's why we can't compare. I can't compare what I do with what you do or vice versa because God has given me certain gifts, I use them. God has given you certain gifts, you use it. All that is played up in this one word of calling and we're called. So if you're a part of the church, big C, not little c, big C meaning the church, whether you're part of Boca Raton Community Church, we're the small c, we're just the specific church here in Boca Raton, you're called by God. And then he says, you're beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father is the current. So you've been called in the past, there's a current context that God loves you. Please understand this, that you are loved. You might be loved by your family, you might be loved by this church, you might be loved by other people, family, friends, etc. You might be, all those things. And that might come, that might go, but you are loved by God. All of us are loved by God. How do we know this? Because John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. When you celebrate Christmas these next two weeks, you are celebrating not just the coming of God to earth in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, you're also celebrating that God loves you. So if you celebrate Christmas, you are celebrating that God loves you. When you go, I don't feel God loves me, then don't celebrate Christmas because celebrating Christmas is the reality of knowing God loves us and sent his son to us. That's the beauty of our story. Our story is a huge story. It's not just occurring on one day in December and another day in April with Easter. No, it is a global, unbelievable story. And a part of it is that God called us. The other part is God loves us. And inside that calling and that love, Jesus came to this earth. And the third part, this is very important. It says, and those who have been called and are beloved by God and in God are kept. I want you to underline the word kept in Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ. This is very, very important because this is a marriage term. This is an engagement term. This is a fiance term. Whatever word you wanna use, this is a term that you and I as members of the church, as those who have been called loved by God, 
we are also the bride of Christ. Now we throw that word around like bride of Christ, bride of Christ. What we need to say is Christ is the groom and we are the bride. Now here's the beautiful thing. When we think in the United States context and maybe other contexts as well, I don't know where and how many of you are married outside the United States, but in the United States, for instance, right here, I was, Elizabeth and I were married right here on the spot where I'm standing. And Elizabeth was, I was here, excuse me, I was here, and Elizabeth was out there. And she walked in and came and we got married because I was here, she was outside. In the ancient context, the bride was here, not in a church, she was in her home, and the groom from another city or another town or another part of the village would come to the home because the bride was kept until the bridegroom came. So when the groom came, there was a marriage and the marriage occurred. There was an engagement that had already occurred. We've talked about this before, a betrothal. And so why is it so important that we believe Jesus is coming again? Because we believe Jesus the groom is coming for his bride, you and me. And then there's going to be a marriage supper of the lamb, the lamb being Christ. So Christ, we're gonna have a marriage supper, just like, we had a supper after our marriage. You might have had a supper or cake, it doesn't matter, but there's gonna be a supper of the marriage between the groom and the bride. And we have been kept and we are being kept. God loves us so much that he's keeping us until the groom comes. Do you see that? Now, let me just digress for a moment. And why is the word marriage so important? Marriage is important because of what I've just said. Marriage has been destroyed in this country. The word marriage has been destroyed and the concept of marriage has been destroyed. Now let me just say, gay marriages, let me just, let's not use the word marriage, let's just say gay relationships have been going on since the beginning of time. We're gonna look at that next week, we're running out of time but we're gonna look at that in verse six and seven, that it has been going on forever. That is not new. None of this is new. What is new is that we call it marriage. The thing that makes me personally upset about this whole concept that's going on in our country and has now just been confirmed by our Congress, it was confirmed by our Senate, I mean by our um, uh, judiciary, our Supreme Court a few years ago, is not about homosexuality, that's been around forever. I mean, I'm against it, but it's been around forever. It's that they have taken a word of meaning and have redefined that word. Now here's the thing, okay, football, football. Now I have to, and you have to explain what the word marriage means. Marriage to you means this, and marriage to you means this. Who's right in a world where there is no right and wrong? Do you see the world we're in? We have an issue. Let's just look real quick at the next verse. And we're gonna, I'm gonna read something and we'll pause here today, okay? 
Beloved, verse 3, I'll skip verse 2, I'll come back to that in two weeks. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith. Jude knew back then, and we'll see why, the issue back then was not marriage versus marriage or this versus, he had other issues, and we'll look at those other issues in three weeks from now. But we need to contend for the faith. There is something that requires us not to just believe, which is very important, Mark told us that a minute ago, believe and then be silent. We have to believe, have faith, and then contend for the faith. Do you see that? Why? Can I read you a quote? I'm going to read you a long quote and um, humor me over this. It's called The Madman, M-A-D-M-A-N. The Madman. It was written 130 years ago by a man who saw, he's not a believer, he's an anti-believer, who saw that Europe was going down and he was glad about it when it came to faith. And the words he has written 130 years ago apply to today to this country as if it was written just today. The Madman Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he emigrated to another country? Thus they yelled and laughed at the madman. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving away from all the suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all direction? Is there still any way up? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breadth of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not night continually closer, closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too also decompose. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods so that simply to appear worthy of doing what we did? We have killed God. 
This, my friends, is where our country is today. We are stabbing at God. But can I tell you that they will fail. They will fail. This common salvation that we have doesn't mean it's simple, simplistic. It took the life of Jesus Christ. And we are about to celebrate that over the next two weeks. The reality that Jesus Christ is the way, is the truth, is the life. Yes, there is a way. Yes, there is a truth, the truth. And yes, there is life. And we can stab at the wind all we want. But they are not going to kill God. They might kill marriage. They might kill some other things. But God speaks for God. And he is greater than we are. And I want you to be encouraged. This was a kind of a discouraging week to see marriage go down another 10 flights of steps. But I got to tell you, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords will not fall. The rest of Jude tells us about this, and we are out of time to talk about it. But I want to pray, I want us to pray, and I want the, the team to come back up because we're going to sing a song of hope at the end, a song of joy at the end, a song of triumph at the end. No one leave because if you leave right now, you're going to leave depressed. <laughs> and I don't want anybody to say, I went to church and got depressed. That's <laughs> why, why you got to stay till the third, third part, and that is this. The whole story of Christmas takes us from this place of people in the Roman times, the Greek times, the Mesopotamian times, when they were all stabbing at the gods. And can I tell you that Jesus Christ is the answer. The God sent his son to earth, Emmanuel. And what did he do here? He lived a perfect life and died on a cross for our sins. And they cannot stab that thing away. They killed Jesus. And death could not hold him. That's the beautiful part of this story. They did kill him. And he couldn't be held by death. You can chain me up and you could hold me. But they killed them. You kill me, I'm done. It's over. They killed Christ. And he lives. And the Bible says, because he lives, we too shall live. Isn't that amazing? And that's the story that we're going to talk about at Christmas. Friday night, next Saturday a week, and then on Christmas morning. That there's a purpose behind this. We are being kept for Jesus. Many verbal knives, spiritual knives, people may mock you. But here's what I'm finding out. This story of the madman is wrong. A lot of people are out there heckling. But let me tell you, if you live a Christian life that is consistent, a lot of people are going, tell me about you. How can you get through life like this? And people are coming to Jesus. It's not like 
all the Christians of the world are now done. The world, the Christians are over here, the non-Christians are over there. No, we followers of Christ, there are more, there are gonna be more followers of Christ next week than there were this week. Because people like you and me are out there sharing the faith. The Holy Spirit is working. The word of God is being taught. So do not be afraid because there will be times when you'll be laughed at, but still light the lantern. Do not ever be afraid to light the lantern and say, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. You don't even have to light it, you just gotta hold it up. He is the light. And he's called us to be little lights as well. The end of the book of Jude, it's only 25 sentences long, verses, I'm gonna read it and then we're gonna sing it and I want you to walk out of here in a few moments triumphant to realize who Jesus Christ is. If you don't know who he is, today's the day to believe. So I said earlier, the gift, if you're looking for a gift from Christ of a computer or car or something, you can pray that one on your own. He wants to give the gift of himself to you this year. The Bible says, believe on him and you shall be saved. That's all it is. It's a simple prayer of faith. Do that today. After we sing, um, our prayer people will be down here. We want you to come down and pray. If you're discouraged, come down and pray. If you need encouragement, come down and pray. If you need Jesus, come down and pray. If you just want to pray about anything, come down here and pray. You can learn about giving. You can learn about the meetings we're having and the great concerts afterwards out there. God loves you, my friends, and this church loves you, and we want you to have a great Christmas. Jude ended his book by saying, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time. That's back then. Now, that's here and forever. And he says, amen and amen.